This is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and gave his son as the propitiation for our sins. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. John's gospel does not cover quite as much as Matthew and Luke do, but each encounter in John's gospel gets full treatment. Almost half a chapter devoted to encounter between Jesus and a nameless Samaritan woman at a well, Jacob's well. So who is this woman? And what is the problem that Jesus is addressing? Well, I want to clear this up right away. This text is not about adultery. That is a mistake that many of us in the West have made because we are so used to people divorcing and remarrying and divorcing and remarrying that we take our Western idea of people that can't settle down with one person and apply it to a situation in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. But even the Middle East today, including Asia, you are not going to see this sort of behavior. This kind of woman, if what she was doing was committing adultery, would be considered a prostitute. Even more so, how would it be possible for her to continue to be able to get so many divorces? If she is the one who is, quote unquote, sleeping around, then she has to be the one who keeps going to these men and asking for divorce to move in with somebody else. And that would have been near on impossible. So if it's not that she just can't settle on one man, what is the problem here? The problem that seems to fit is barrenness. This woman cannot give birth. So she marries the first husband, and it's assumed that she will be able to give at least a daughter, if not a son, for the first husband. And as years go by and she's unable to have a child, the man divorces her. What use are you to me if you can't produce for me an heir? And so she gets passed on to another, perhaps a little bit less picky man, and then a third man, and a fourth, and finally a fifth and now she's living with someone who is not willing to get into marriage, but does have pity on her and says, fine, you can live with me. So this is a woman who, first of all, feels abandoned by God because she can't give birth. And that was the one marker that God was blessing you. You were able to give your husband and your family lots of children. And she can't give any Secondly, she feels abandoned by her community because the whole community around her looks on her as useless, as somebody, even worse, that God has abandoned and maybe it'll rub off on them. Maybe if they stay too close to her, maybe God's curse that has fallen on her will be transferred over to their families. That's the reason, of course, why the woman comes to the well at noon. Now, we here in Canada like noon because it's probably the warmest part of the day, especially in the summer. But if you are in hotter regions of the world, noon is the time for siesta. Noon is the time for taking a break from work because it is so hot. So this woman knows that nobody's going to be at the well. She can go there by herself and leave by herself without facing the derision of the other women in the city or village. 
She also feels then abandoned by God, who she has tried to worship at Mount Gerizim. She has worshipped faithfully there, as was the practice of the Samaritans, the descendants of the northern tribes of Israel who rebelled against Solomon's son, splitting God's people into two groups, a northern kingdom that worshipped at one mountain and the southern kingdom that worshipped in Jerusalem in the temple. So this story is about a woman who has been truly abandoned in her own thinking by men, by her community, and by her God. And in the midst of all of that abandonment, coming to the well to draw water by herself, she sees a man there, and not just any man, but a Jewish man from the southern kingdom, who have no truck with the people from the north. They are dead enemies. Jews have no conversation with Samaritans, the old text says. They do not talk together. They do not get along. In fact, Jews will walk out of their way to not have to pass through Samaria to get from Galilee, Jesus's home area, to the capital of Jerusalem. But here's this Jew, a man who speaks to her. Can I have a drink? Can you get me some water? So with the taboo broken, man speaking to woman, Jew speaking to Samaritan, somebody who doesn't know her situation, actually asking her for a drink, they can now have a conversation. Even today, that's one of the ways that we start up conversations, isn't it? Why don't we go out for coffee? Why don't we go out and get a drink together? That's kind of what Jesus is doing here at the well. And it's interesting that this is over water. It's over a drink and not over food. You see, in English, we have a word for people that are not hungry. We say that we're full. But do you know that in English, there is no word for not being thirsty? There is no word for not being thirsty because we are so utterly dependent on water. I know you're all racking your brain try and come up with one. If you do, you can meet me at the end of the service, but I I haven't found one in any dictionary that I've looked through. The whole conversation then hinges on water and not just any kind of water, but living water. Now, what is living water? Well, water that comes from a stagnant pond is not living, grows scum on the top. It can be dangerous to drink. You can have bacteria and all sorts of viruses in that water. Living water is water that moves, It's that water that you find in that beautiful, clear stream when you're out walking in the Laurentians or up north of Quebec City. You see it and it looks like you could just drink it right there in a cup. That's living water, water that's moving, water that is not stagnant. And so Jesus says he has come to offer that kind of water to the woman, which only leaves her confused, of course, because she is at a well. And while wells are not exactly stagnant, they're not exactly flowing either. And then the conversation shifts one more time to the conversation about which mountain you should worship on. And as I've already talked to you about, the Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim and the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. Now, in Jesus' mind, there's no question about which mountain is more important. He says, very bluntly, salvation is from the Jews. 
The temple is where we meet God as God wants to be met, not on Mount Gerizim. Now, this goes back to the age-old question, where can I meet God? Surely God is present everywhere, right? We can meet God on Jari as we're walking along. We can meet God in Marché Jean Talon. We can meet God on the metro. We can meet God on the mountaintops or while we're canoeing on a river somewhere in Quebec. This is certainly true. And in that way, God is also at Mount Gerizim. But the question Jesus is asking is not, where can you meet God? But where can you meet a God that will address your abandonment? The fact that you've moved from husband to husband to husband, and that your community has turned its back on you, and ultimately you trace that all back to the fact that you don't know what God's attitude is toward you. You can't have children. Does that mean God hates you? This text, then, is ultimately about our theme for Lent. God's love in Christ. God's love shown at the cross. That this is love. So how does Jesus address this? Well, ultimately, abandonment is all about sin, as most things are. We, as human beings, feel cut off. We feel cut off from each other. We feel misunderstood. We feel like even our friends don't get us. We feel like our parents don't understand us. Our kids don't listen to us. The government doesn't take into account the things that we need and want. It just seems like the list goes on. And we start to feel like that woman at the well. Like we've also been abandoned. And to make ourselves feel better, we actually try and create other groups that we can cut off and say, well, at least we're not them. At least we're not from that country. At least we're not from that religion. At least we don't speak that language. To try and make ourselves feel connected somehow, to make ourselves feel better, to make ourselves feel maybe not quite so abandoned. Well, at least my group loves me. And so we try and justify ourselves before the world. Well, at least I'm wealthier, or I'm faster, or I'm smarter, or I'm cuter, or I have a better job, or I come from a better country, or I speak a better language, or my kids are better behaved than theirs. Look what their kids do during the meal. Or my parents have more social status. Look at the kind of jobs that your parents did versus mine. But no matter how much we try and justify ourselves to give ourselves a place in society by doing all of those things, the waves of the sinful world keep crashing over top of us. Suddenly that wife or husband that you've committed your life to out of nowhere seemingly comes and says, I want a divorce. You think you've been doing so well at work and your boss calls you in and says, I'm sorry, I have to let you go. You go from being a doctor or an engineer, a well-respected lawyer in your home country to delivering food with Uber in a country that's not your own. To all of us in those situations, Jesus brings this word of promise. I will speak to you. I will sit with you at the well at noon. I will offer to you, no matter what you've tried to do to justify yourself, I will offer myself in its place. 
I will offer my cross as your justification, and I will make you into a new family that will never abandon you. And secondly, I will teach you of a God who, even when everything seems to be going wrong, you can be certain still loves you. This whole issue of Mount Gerizim and Jerusalem, you see, isn't about knowing God. Most people, even atheists, know God. It's just that atheists hate him. Everybody has some sense that there must be something bigger or larger than them in the world. Anytime you or I tell somebody you shouldn't do that, you're appealing to some kind of God, somebody that rules over everyone and that you can appeal to. That's not the problem. The problem is what kind of God and can you be sure, certain, and stake your life on the fact that he loves you? that he cares for you, even when everything seems to be going wrong. 500 years ago, Martin Luther understood this problem. He lived in a culture where everybody knew God. But what kind of God was he? He seemed very capricious, sometimes even hateful and unjust. And so when Luther was trying to explain the Christian faith in one of his teaching books, he wrote this. We would never recognize God the Father's favor and grace were it not for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a mirror of the Father's heart. Apart from him, we see nothing but an angry and terrible judge. What the Samaritan woman saw in her life. But neither could we know anything of Christ had it not been revealed by the Spirit. These three articles of the creed of faith therefore separate and distinguish us Christians from all other people on earth. Non-Christians, whether they are followers of native religion, Muslims, Jews, false Christians, even hypocrites, even though they believe in and worship the only true God, Nevertheless, do not know what his attitude is toward them. They cannot be confident of his love and blessing, and therefore they remain under wrath and condemnation, for they do not know God in Jesus. The Samaritans knew God. That wasn't the problem. They knew God. In fact, they claimed it was the same God that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob worshipped. Muslims know God. Sikhs know God. Hindus know many gods. That's not the problem. It's not that Christians say that we know God and nobody else does. It's that we have confidence that God loves us because his son sacrificed himself on the cross. He was willing to put up with everything we could throw at him. Condemnation, poverty, persecution, as our confirmation class talked about this morning. He took it all and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And as they nailed him to the cross, he handed off his mother to another disciple to look after her, concerned even to the end with how those he loved would be looked after. And the very last word he said was not, Father, wipe these people from the face of the earth. It was not, Father, crush these people underfoot and show them how unjust they had been to me. His last words were, it is accomplished. From now on, sinners 
know that we love them. We have redeemed them and they can be ours. I want to finish with one quick little interesting note. John, who writes not only John's gospel, but three letters and the book of Revelation, loves numbers. He's very excited whenever numbers come up, which is why Revelation is filled with numbers. Twelve of this and seven of that and ten of the other thing. Now, the number seven, as I drill into people who are in my Bible studies, is the number of divine perfection, of completeness, of rest, because it's made of the number four, which is the number of creation, north, south, east, west, and the Jewish number for God, which is the number three. Four plus three makes seven. Now, look at this Samaritan woman one last time before we leave her behind for today. She had had five husbands, and now she's living with her sixth man, but there's a seventh who is speaking to her. There is the perfect man who has come to give her living water. There is the perfect man who has come to show that God is with us. That man is Jesus, who is the Christ. So the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus literally says to her, I am the one speaking to you, the one speaking to you this morning, who loves you even to the point of death. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.